I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of The Arena, and today we have a very special guest, one of my first bosses ever, Shomik Dutta, who was a fundraiser on both Obama presidential campaigns and went on to go work in the White House, the FCC, and then now is the co-founder of Higher Ground Labs, which is an incubator of new political startups in the technology space. In this conversation, we talk about the early days of the Obama campaign, Obama's progression as a candidate at that time, uh, Shomik's job as the uh, person used to run call time with Obama when Obama would be locked in a windowless room making fundraising calls. And then we talk about the transition to governing in the White House and then uh, the journey that has brought us here to this new political time uh, as we're all part of what is called the resistance. This is an enjoyable conversation, but um, I should say that there is some explicit language in this conversation. And so if you have kids around, please pause it and uh, replay it when there are no kids around. Uh, other than that, let's just jump in. Shomik Dutta, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Ravi Gupta, thank you. It's good to be with you, buddy. So Shomik, in I think it was February 2007, I left law school and jumped on an upstart presidential campaign. And I remember vividly showing up to a two-room office above Bagels and Baguettes on Capitol Hill. Uh, I know you were a writer in college. Paint the scene for us. What's the setting uh, of that office? And what was that, what, what, what was that time period like politically? Oh, man. Uh, I remember Barack Obama used to fucking hate that office. He used to, he used to sit in the call time room and say, he smelled like garlic bread. We basically picked the cheapest and closest campaign office to the Hart Senate building where uh, the senator worked. And this was his sort of political hub and his fundraising hub and the place where the Hope Fund PAC, which was his Senate PAC, transitioned into uh, that what would then become Obama for America, which would then ship out to Chicago. Uh, and in those days, fundraising was the most important thing that Barack Obama could do to kind of prove himself as a tier one candidate. Um, at that time, you had everyone from Bill Richardson to John Edwards to Tom Bilsack to, of course, Hillary Clinton in. And they were all muscling each other. And the only sort of early litmus test that someone could, uh, that a reporter or an outsider could use to gauge credibility was money. Uh, and the big question around Barack Obama was whether he could raise the money. And so I was uh, punk 23. I think I was 23 at the time. I had worked on Senate races and governor's races uh, in college and then right out of college and uh, got my gig on Obama starting December 20, December of 2006. Uh, Juliana Smoot and Ami Copeland hired me. And then my big brother, Priam Dutta, from the law school, school said there's a smart, uh, ambitious Indian kid that wants to kill himself on a campaign. And that was you. And I, the Indian in me said yes right away. <laughs> well, I... Uh... You know, just for our listeners to know, you know, you had started when it was this thing, as you mentioned, called Hope Fund, which was the political action committee that uh, Senator Obama at the time used to support other Senate candidates who were running in 2006. And then where he used it to just test the waters for a presidential run. And 
you know, as I jumped in, Hope Fund was transitioning to the exploratory committee for presidency, where it was becoming obvious he was going to run. You had this unique job at the time, which was beyond raising money for uh, a chunk of the country, like the mid-Atlantic region. You also ran what was called call time a lot. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what that was like running call time in the early days for uh, Senator Obama, who needless to say, was reluctant to ask people for money at that time. Yeah. So call time is the single worst, most soul sucking feature of modern politics. that I think most even observers are not aware of call time is this uh, windowless, cold, boring room uh, where candidates are thrust into by their campaign staff. And they sit with a punk 23-year-old, much like I was, and are made to make four to five hours worth of calls every day. And the idea is that there's no higher, the most sort of precious commodity on a campaign is the candidate's time. And the best way to raise money uh, in fairness of the candidate's time is on the phone, where you can call hundreds of people in an hour, leave messages, and have a punk 23-year-old staffer like me uh, uh, keeping people on the phone, keeping them warm, feeding uh, talking points uh, and collecting checks, whether they be commitments for uh, big events or individual checks over a phone with a credit card. And so my job was to to do that with with the senator uh, day in and day out. And uh, it was probably the least uh, memorable six months of his life and the most memorable six months of my life. And you got a up close look at him at a time that I think has been forgotten by history, which was a time period where he was riding the learning curve of campaigning. Uh, I remember vividly the frustrations that he had in those those early months, uh, and you know they were on full display in the office as he was not as good as he wanted to be at campaigning, and we were down twenty to thirty points for a pretty consistent and scary amount of time. Um, did anything stand out to you as you watched him in that room during some of the most difficult moments of that campaign? Oh, man, it's funny. You know, the distaste for the sort of transactional nature of political fundraising and the sort of derivative power that donors feel from just being close to a politician left him with sort of zero time and zero sort of energy for those types of people. And those are the people we needed. Now, the good thing is in the early Obama days, we kind of had the best, the cream of the crop, right? We had donors and uh, early supporters who weren't in it for the wrong reasons. They were doing the right things for the right reasons, which I think made it fun. But he was still left with the distaste for, you know, the Chevy Chase types that couldn't wait to tell their friends they had dinner with Obama with their best 300 other friends. Um, but, you know, over and it's interesting when you think about culture uh, in the Obama organization and later in the Obama White House, the two things I think the president had the strongest strong Strongest distaste for were political fundraising and sort of transactional reporting. And when you look at two places where we institutionally had some weakness, it was around donor relationships and reporter journalist relationships, particularly to access journalists uh, like the politicos and the morning tip sheets and the places where he was loath to engage. Um, so it's interesting to think about the way that sort of culture from one culture and preferences from one man infected an entire organization over time. Um, yeah, but his early days were uh, he, he just the, the man could not stand fundraising and uh, made it clear to the staff and to to people that uh, if they wanted to support a vision and wanted to do something well, they should get involved. But if they wanted ambassadorships or wanted, uh, uh, you know, other perks, they should go find a different candidate. So not only uh, did he loathe fundraising in the beginning, but he 
prohibited us from raising from lobbyists. And we were in DC at the time and you were going head to head against a pretty talented fundraiser on the other side in Hillary's campaign that was also located in DC where Hillary both had her campaign headquarters, but also, you know, decades of experience and and connections. So what was that like trying to build up a fundraising base Man, it was so motivating. Actually, interestingly enough, Natalie Jones, who ran Hillary's uh, fundraising in the Mid-Atlantic region, had extended a job offer to me to be deputy finance director for her uh, in 2006. The same time I had gotten a job offer from Obama's folks. And, uh, you know, of course, my risk averse Indian father yelled, take the Hillary job the same way he told me to take a job at Lehman Brothers uh, in college. Uh, and my sort of heart was with was with Obama. And so I was competing now head to head with Natalie Jones, a woman who was more senior and more experienced than I was, but it was incredibly motivating. We were just scrappy hustlers. And so we started with identifying a bunch of Mark Warner uh, donors who were naturally sort of anti-Clinton and that also liked upstart insurgent candidacies. Uh, And we went for them first. And one of the first and best people we recruited was a guy named Don Beyer, who is now a congressman in Virginia. He's just simply one of the most good and decent people on the planet, would encourage anyone listening uh, to give Don Beyer money and follow Don Beyer closely because he's in it for all the right reasons. And he became our Mid-Atlantic finance chair and brought in a big sort of army of uh, different types of folks and helped us hustle from uh, hallways of uh, law firms to uh, uh, different business folks. I would just track anyone selling a business in the Mid-Atlantic that might fit our bill and met all kinds of interesting people that way. But those were the early days, Robbie, when you and I were doing everything and anything. In one episode, we were, you know, we used to have this office in D.C. where most of the campaign, uh, after a few weeks, had gravitated towards Chicago, and it was us and a few others, uh, and some incredible people like Dennis McDonough would roll in and out of the office, and different advisors from around D.C. would come in, and eventually people like our future bosses, Greg Craig and Susan Rice, etc. But uh, there was one memorable day where you and I were out to lunch, and we got a, a message from it was either Marvin or Reggie, it was the traveling staff, and they said, you need to get back to the office. And I think this is a forgotten moment from that campaign. It's not, it's not, Unknown. Been, um, paint the scene for us. What were we sent back to the office for? Uh, and so at the time, uh, what had just broken in the news was that Obama was in the air and our research, our opposition research folks had sent out a memo to, I think to Adam Nagorny of the New York times, uh, under a sort of, implicit agreement that this would be off the record, they sent Adam Nagorny a research memo on Hillary Clinton's close ties to Indian donors. And the memo itself was uh, not well-crafted. It sort of said Hillary, D, D, Punjab, instead of D, New York, as a senator from New York. And I went on to sort of excoriate her for close ties to uh, Indian donors and mused aloud whether Hillary is closer and more sort of aligned with interests of India than the U.S. It was a stupid, vaguely kind of racist memo that shouldn't have gone out. But more importantly, Obama didn't know about it. He was in the air when it went out. It created a ruckus because Nagorny leaked the memo, which sort of violated some accord with the campaign. Um, but then it created a shitstorm. And so Obama landed, was furious with it. And his earliest instinct, for whatever reason, as a, as a shit young staffer as I was, um, and you were, uh, he had Nick Colvin, his then driver, who drove him around in the Saab before Secret Service, come to our office, 
Uh, I thought I was getting fired because I was such an angry, aggressive fundraiser with folks. Uh, he ordered us into his call time room, which is all incidentally his least favorite place on the planet and, uh, sat us down and said, Hey, I, I, broke schedule today. I'm not on the schedule to come here today, but I came because I wanted to apologize to you two directly. I know you're both Indian. I know you have families in India and I want you to know that we're better than this. This isn't who I am and this isn't what the campaign's about. If there's anyone in your family you want us to call, I'll call them right now. And it was just this stunning moment where, you know, we work for this guy. He had nothing to gain transactionally from doing this for us. And most politicians are kind of these empty narcissistic transactional folks. And here's a man who still has a sense of soul of right and wrong and fundamental decency, which as sad as it is to say, you just don't see in politics very often. Uh, and that was the moment I kind of knew, right? I mean, that was a really special moment for me as I remember it was for you. Although I remember Ravi, you had just seen him give a speech saying that he would, he sort of violate all the norms of international, um, uh, foreign relations observers and said, if I, if, if I knew bin Laden was in Pakistan, I would go in there and take him out. And he was sort of roundly reviled and mocked for that comment, uh, in that speech. And you told him at the end of his remarks to us, you're like, Hey, but great speech, by the way. And then panicked that he were that you were being a sarcastic asshole. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It, just, just so the listeners know, it seemed like I was, he gave a kind of a pause where he thought I was messing with him about the speech he gave earlier in the day. Um, it's really amazing to see that. And, you know, it reminds me of what I said earlier, which was I remember he'd come into that office kind of disappointed in himself and in the reactions to some of the early moves he was making on that campaign. And what's fascinating is some of the best parts of his character and his leadership were on full display in moments that seemed like failures at the time. Uh, in totally the- true. I mean, that summer, the summer of 07, we were down 30 to 40 points to Hillary Clinton and there didn't seem to be a path ahead, but it was the single most fun time because we were like a guerrilla operation that was throwing everything against the wall and determined to win. And the most special thing that happened for the fundraising team is in the first quarter of 2007, uh, polls be damned, you know, name ID be damned. We beat Hillary Clinton in a fundraising head-to-head contest. And in those days, it was pre-Citizens United. It was all hard dollars. It was limited to, I think it was $2,300 a person now. It mean $2,100 a person then. And you were, we were only raising primary money. And so it was about scrappy folks um, pulling their networks together and saying, trust me, you know, believe in me. And we would drive around in that rinky dink sob into people's garages and walk into their homes. And, uh, he, 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 he could see, sort of see the, the shine in people's eyes. Um, and I had the job of kind of taking that shine right out of their eyes by making them write an extra check and do more than they wanted to do. But, uh, it was fun and it was worth it. And so I think there's a little bit of a, uh, I think there's a falsehood out there that, that Obama just had it easy raising money in the beginning. And I remember those early days. And I think especially as we got past that second quarter, that second fundraising quarter, we'd done well in our first two fundraising quarters. And I think as we hit July and August, we were still down by 20 plus points nationally and the money started to dry up. And I think one, one thing, you know, there are many things you taught me both about fundraising, but I think organizing generally that actually we continue to use in arena today, like the way that we build host committees and the way that we motivate and track people who commit to different, uh, whether it's bringing people to an event or raising money, et cetera. Um, What are some of the uh, mechanics of running an event, a fundraising event, whether it's a hundred dollar person fundraising event or a thousand dollar person fundraising event that, uh, that you think are broken too often, but that, that should be just obvious to anybody who's, 
uh, working campaigns? Yeah, I think one thing is transparency and, 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 you know, people in politics tend to be naturally competitive and shame is a great motivator. And so one of the things we did early and often was show our co-hosts how everybody was doing, who was raising the most, who was raising the least. And that transparency of where we are as an event, as a team, coupled with where you are as a teammate, uh, I think was a powerful driver and, and, and sort of kicked in the natural kind of instincts of all the kind of alpha lawyers and diplomats and business people that we raised money from. And that fundraising team was maybe one of the, my favorite teams I've ever been a part of, you know, starting at the top with Juliana Smoot, um, who's kind of an understated presence in democratic politics uh, and shout out to Smoot who just had a birthday a week or two ago. She's the best. Um, 25 years old. Uh, the, and then we had people all around the country who were like, you know, huge personalities, Mike O'Neill, Jenny Yeager, Rufus, who basically went on to become a celebrity in Europe. Um, what at, at that time, how did it all feed together? Cause I remember showing up and things were relatively in place by then, but, um, how, how were things structured fundraising wise back then? I, because I, I do wonder the what best thing Smoot did, I think, is just empowered the shit out of people she knew that were good. And so she gave you aggressive numbers. She held you to those numbers, but she would just say, now go hit it. And if you didn't hit it, God help you. And I think you and I once heard her on the phone just chewing somebody up for not hitting their numbers. But if you hit your numbers, you can do whatever you wanted in her, in her mind. And so she created fiefdoms for talented people. And, you know, when you look back at those days, we had a talent across the board and a lot of those guys like Michael O'Neill are going on and do really special things and are, you know, still some of my best friends. Yeah. And you talk about transparency before and how we raise money. And one thing I was remarking to somebody about yesterday, cause we were, we were kind of digging through fundraising emails that we've received this cycle from congressional candidates. And, look, like folks are going to learn, they're going to get better. Like, I don't want to kick people while they're entering the arena. But one thing that we were reminiscing about was the communication that David Plough, the campaign manager had at the time and how consistent it was, whether you were a campaign staffer, whether you were a big dollar donor, or whether you were the person receiving that email update, he essentially had one set of, he had one message every time and he tweeted a little bit for the audience, but it was relatively the same. Um, Yeah. Well, paint those pictures for us, those NFC meetings, finance committees. Yeah, and I would say, just to piggyback on that, there's two really interesting management theories that we now understand better that Pluff kind of owned. One is the sort of management theory of radical honesty and radical transparency that Bridgewater and these other huge hedge funds, um, you know, brilliant minds like Ray Dalio employ, which is that if you're going to have a conversation about somebody in the organization, have it right in front of them. And so famously on the campaign, if a staffer would email Pluff to complain about somebody else or played off his politics, Pluff would just forward it to the staffer that was being complained about without comment. And the idea was, if you have something to say, say it. Don't come to me and play politics around. And I mean, it, 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 it created, uh, one, a firm sort of command structure that allowed decision making to be flexible and fast. The second thing he did was uh, incorporate what we now understand from like Stan McChrystal and other uh, brilliant leaders around radical transparency in distributing information widely. And so McChrystal, when he ran um, uh, the the operation in Afghanistan, had uh, would would live stream all of his meetings, even his 
uh, innermost command would like would broadcast their meetings to any first or second lieutenant that wanted to listen in. And the idea was there's nothing we are doing that is so special or so secret that we cannot share immediately with the rest of our command structure. And that's what Pluff did, right? Pluff's videos to supporters where he kind of laid out the map, talked about priorities, talked about states where we were weak and states where we were strong. It, it empowered an organization to take action and feel ownership in a way that it could not have otherwise. And I think that stood in stark contrast to the style of the other side at the time. And, you know, in, in wrapping up the conversation about fundraising, uh, you're a famously fearless fundraiser, and as we support candidates in Arena and even staffers, I think people are afraid to ask people for money. Um, what goes through your mind? You know, you are you are one of the best, if not one of the best, people I've ever met in making an ask. You you really don't appear to be worried about the response you're going to get. What's going through your mind when you're asking people for money? You know, I, I do have to give Obama credit here that like one of the reasons I was so filled with fire is like I desperately wanted this guy to win. Right. And so um, that drove me more than anything. But the, another thing I would say is that uh, y- y- you have to. So I, I guess at a, at a high level, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in the mission that you're trying to accomplish with the dollars you're trying to raise. And if you can't clearly articulate that mission, um, you're not going to raise the money no matter what you're doing. So you better have a damn good story about why you want to run for office. And it should not be you want to run for office because you want to read about yourself because those those sort of instincts generally get sniffed out pretty fast. Um, the second thing is to really build a sort of sense of empathy for the person that you're pitching and figure out what is driving them what makes them tick and what gets them to a yes. And then the third thing is, and I, I, you know, when I was in, I went to Williams college in, in Northeast mass and I would, and which is in the middle of nowhere. And I would spend all my time reading about good sort of political operatives. And the one that I always obsessed the most about was Rahm Emanuel. And he, he started his career as a fundraiser. Uh, and uh, the fearlessness, fearlessness that I challenged was often from stuff I'd read about him, which was just not just taking no for an answer. He would hang up on donors. He would jump on tables and excoriate his staff to work harder. And like, that's the kind of stuff that um, filled me with fire as a 23 year old punk. One of the hallmarks of that campaign beyond the, just the true belief that permeated the campaign. I, I honestly can't think of anybody in those early days who did not believe 100% in the mission. There was nobody on that campaign that I can remember that was doing it for the wrong reasons. Nobody yeah, was until we won the, once we won the primary, the other folks came on board. Yeah. Things change, you know, and, and you've got that, you know, I think O'Neill has that, uh, that I don't know if is it Twain or something. There's a, a quote about the, the, the sunshine Patriot or whatnot. Um, and we, so we were kicking that kind of stuff around by that point. There were definitely a lot of folks who came in later on and the culture started to change, but right before the culture changed was maybe the most special period of time in the campaign, which was when we're all deployed, no matter what your job was, you were deployed to early states to help folks in the field and essentially become members of the field operation. And I was sent to Fort Dodge, Iowa, a remarkable experience. Shout out to Joe Boswell, who is remarkable out there. Uh, And you were sent out to New Hampshire. Talk a little bit about the experience of going from, you know, wearing a suit every day, being in crowds of, of people who are millionaires and sometimes more to being out there knocking doors in the, in the freezing cold in New Hampshire. I just found the Thomas, it's a Thomas Paine quote. And here it is. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. <laughs> That's great. 
Um, that was tough for me, man. I mean, when I was like, you know, I was 23, 24, I thought it was such hot shit, uh, rubbing elbows with whomever. And then you realize that organizers work way harder than fundraisers and have way tougher tasks and like don't sort of lead particularly glamorous day-to-day work, but like are out there with clipboards banging on doors and making things happen. And it was, it was eye-opening, but you know, the amazing thing was we got deployed over and again. So my, yeah, my first tour of duty was in New Hampshire. Um, second tour of duty was uh super Tuesday where Brandon Hurlbut, Mike French and I got deployed and uh, worked in Delaware together, which was the only Feb five state that Pluff didn't think we had a chance winning that we ended up flipping um uh and then uh, went on to pennsylvania and and each of those uh sort of moments taught me a lot about gotv and a lot about uh the value of organizing and just when you, when you think about the sheer volume of tasks that an organizer does from just paperwork and data entry alone um it, it's mind-boggling i mean these folks have to work day and night under extreme pressure and maintain a sunny demeanor that makes other people want to be around them. And so it's no surprise that some of our most talented sort of folks that came out of the Obama orbit, friends like Johannes um, and Jeremy Bird and Mitch Stewart uh, all started as organizers, right? Yeah. Ronnie Cho. My, my, my business, my business partner, Betsy Hoover started as an organizer and you know uh, it's incredible. And it's actually one of the things uh, that made me most passionate about finding better tech tools because when, when you consider the fact that these organizers are still sending their canvassers out with clipboards and paper walk packets and number two pencils, they then come back with, you know, hundreds of pages of walk packets with scribble on them and have to input that into a computer staying up till 3 a.m. and then get up for the next canvas shift, get those folks ready to get out. It is a grueling day in and day out that job. Yeah. And, you know, we go through the process we're, we're, we're deployed out there to the, the early states. And, you know, I, I, you just reminded me there's just about the kind of spirit of that campaign. You know, we used to share an office with Dennis McDonough when he was the foreign policy advisor at the time. And it was basically him and us. And we were so loud and crazy, uh, you know, ringing bells and doing pushups when we raised money. And uh, so he used to go down the hall into this his little office and do his work there quietly uh, and politely come every now and then and say, hello. I remember, uh, you know, we weren't making any money and, and, and uh, you know, we're probably horrible about reimbursing ourselves for travel and all these things, you know, just kind of putting ourselves into debt working on this campaign. And I remember I just cut my lease before I was going to Iowa and I just had some boxes and I, I remember bringing them to the office and just stacking them up. Uh, in Dennis's office while he was working. And I was like, you sure you're okay with this? And he was like, I'll be right there with you very soon. You know, that's the kind of campaign it was. And sure enough, yeah, two funny there. stories about McDonough. One, when he was in Iowa canvassing at the end, you know, seven, he, he, this is a, you know, wiry, intense man, intensely loyal to family, intensely loyal to good staff and just like a decent human being, but he's also a competitor, right? And he's a ton of fire under there. And he was knocking on a door in Iowa, somewhere in Des Moines. And he banged on the door so hard. The woman, I think slipped in surprise and fell and broke her arm. Uh, and Dennis rode with her to the hospital to make sure she's okay or something like that. And then ended up, uh, not being able to flip that boat either. She's a Hillary supporter. <laughs> um, that's story one. Story two, do you, do you remember, like, I figured out a way to page all the phones at once in the office. I remember. I feel like I pay, I would page Dennis 
and be like, Dennis, uh, Akma Dinajad on line two for direct talks. Because even then, uh, the senator was out there talking about uh, a, a better diplomatic solution and deal to cut with Iran. And uh, uh, I remember Dennis come, came screaming out of his office because he's the British foreign minister in his office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, if, he would just come in there sometimes and, uh, you know, not safe for the podcast sometimes what, what we'd be up to, but he'd come in there and just look at us like it was animal house or something. We were children, man. We were children, but we got the, we got the job done. So transitioning from the campaign world, you know, we won that campaign in the general election, a lot of interesting stories there, but so much less interesting than that primary campaign. And then you and I had kind of a similar story, but different in some ways. You know, I went back to law school, was trying to finish thought I would stay out of the first year or two of the campaign, but lasted all of a week or two and then jumped in to work in New York for Susan Rice as her special assistant. You went to Greg Craig as his special assistant. I remember both that transition and then the early years of the administration, at least from my perspective. You know, I, I, I've never been capital D depressed, but I was definitely oh, I was totally depressed. It was it was tough times. Yeah. I can't even remember and articulate exactly why. Um, it's actually, you know, what's funny. Uh, here's what I think is like, it was actually one of the most mature and sort of stable things, decisions the president made. And because he was surrounded by these hyper partisans on the campaign that frankly didn't know much. I didn't know anything. I just knew how to fight and I knew how to raise money. Uh, and there were a lot of hacks on, on that campaign that were very loyal very talented at what they did, but not ready to run a government by any stretch of imagination. And the smartest thing the president did was make John Podesta the chair of the transition, which drove a lot of partisans nuts because we had sort of fought with him uh, when he was uh, uh, so involved with Hillary. And he brought in a stable of super senior folks who had run a government before and knew what they were doing. And it's a funny parallel to what you see now in the Trump administration, which has not done that to a large degree, with the exception of H.R. McMaster and people like Matt they have he still surrounded himself with the same cabal of sort of campaign hacks that don't know how to run a government and you're seeing those consequences now with previous as chief of staff and guys like miller and bannon around him that don't know i mean thankfully they don't know how to pull the levers of government as effectively as someone else might but um it was a really remarkable moment uh and one that drove us nuts it was i think a collective sense of anxiety and depression on the campaign because everybody you know we all all thought we would be White House Chief of Staff after you won Winter Presidential. And it turns out that, no, I was only qualified to get coffee for Greg, which was still a great front seat to see a lot of things. Yeah, I had I had the distinct honor of carrying Susan Rice's purse, uh, which to this day, I still hang pictures of it because I learned more doing that than I've done in almost anything else. Uh, yeah. and, you know, I think as a, as a lesson to a lot of people to close the book on the campaign world here a little bit, I get often asked, what do you do to you know, how did you get in to the campaign world successfully and all that? And I think about those early days with you, you know, I came in and, you know, essentially did it, did everything, uh, short of sweeping the floors, you know, just keeping spreadsheets and mailing checks back to Chicago. You know, at that time, most fundraising was not done online. Uh, and you know, then even when we, I, you know, we pick the right candidate, we stick it through and, and have good relationships. And then we get an administration. You still, we're still in our twenties, you know, and we, yeah. We're answering emails and we're carrying purses, getting people's coffee and, and you, you get access that way and you learn. And I, you know, I think about it now, if I, if I had the, the experience I have now with the access that I had then, um, 
it, I would be a much different aid. And I guess that's what it's supposed to be about. Like the evolution, yeah. you know, Rom Rom Manuel has a great riff on like wonks and hacks and how wonks uh, are steeped in policy. Uh, hacks understand sort of political warfare and the best sort of people tend to bubble from uh, or have enough of both skill set to be a wonk and a hack. And the key is never be one or the, or, or, or the other alone, because that doesn't, that only gets you so far. And I think that was on full display for us. When we went into government, we realized that we were hacks and we had no sort of hard skills or um, sets of experiences that could allow the White House to advance the ball. And so I rightfully served coffee for, for six months. Um, and, so you then went on and then you went to go work uh, in the FCC under Julius Janikowski and then went into the private sector, <clears throat> had a lot of success in the private sector, but, uh, and you, you know, you dipped in on the 2012 election, helped out with fundraising, but most importantly for this conversation, like many folks who are part of the arena, the results here in 2016 compelled you to, to jump back in. And so uh, tell us a little bit about your journey from the election to Higher Ground Labs, which uh, you've co-founded with Betsy Hoover. Yeah, I mean, you know, like everybody listening, that that election was kind of a spasm uh, of the brain. And uh, I realized that there's a gener there was a generation of sort of young Obama operatives that were super talented that didn't participate in 2016. And and. To their great credit, some some did and continue to be in the fight. But a lot of us kind of moved for greener pastures, thinking we could transition in the private sector uh, and, and make some money and do something else. And then we were kind of done with our time. Uh, and, you know, maybe we are partially to blame for, for the outcome because there's such talent and such experience warehoused in that Obama family. Um, and so it was my wake up call that whatever I did had to have impact. And my uh, my goal was to reach hundreds of campaigns at once. I didn't want to work on one individual campaign. I wanted to do something that could impact and benefit hundreds of campaigns because we have to fight everywhere. And the place I settled on was the need for better technology for campaigns. Uh, and for those that don't know, our campaigns are kind of frozen in time. We still organize using clipboards and walk packets like I talked about earlier. Our polling still has, we accept 6.5 to 7 Point zero margins of error, even though we're running 51, 49 races in most cases. Um, we don't have uh, our, our data and targeting may, you know, you know, arguably could have been a little bit better last cycle. We don't do things with the same sort of execution and speed uh, and efficiency as the private sector. And that's starting to wear because we're trying to engage those same consumers. And those consumers are now looking at different screens. Um, they're not watching television as much, but we pay our media consultants a percentage of what they spend. And so lo and behold, most of the spending is going on NBC and ABC. Um, but, you know, it's in, what's encouraging is that you're seeing a tectonic shift to digital. And so our tools better be good in digital. And I want to build a platform that continually imagines and reaches for better stuff. Um, and so every cycle, um, what we've been doing in the past is uh, relying on presidential campaigns to incubate tech. And so in 08 and in 12, you had some of the smartest engineering talent and product managers in the country building incredible tech tools. But every cycle, those dots. And what we want to do is build an external platform that reaches for better tools and can help warehouse that IP and continually just supply it to campaigns to help them compete. Great. And so that is uh, 
that's sort of the why behind Higher Ground Labs. So tell us about the what. So what are you doing? Yeah, so we are an accelerator. We've raised uh, every year. We spend about three million bucks. Uh, we invest in somewhere between ten to twenty companies, and uh, the largest check we've written is three hundred fifty thousand. The smallest check we've written is fifty thousand dollars, and we are investing in companies that impact discrete verticals on campaigns. Uh, so whether it's digital engagement or polling or data and targeting or voter protection, we're finding the best companies in those spaces, recruiting those entrepreneurs sometimes that are even pre-product to start a company, writing them a check. We will provide them with programming. We'll basically put them in a business boot camp and try to help accelerate their development so that they're uh, sort of running faster and able to get into the bloodstream faster. Uh, and then on the other side of the market, we're educating campaigns and campaign committees and political consultants to let them know that we are this sort of clearinghouse that will find and beta test great products. And when those products hit the blood flow, we'll make sure that they push fast and then we're testing them to make sure that they're the best they could be. And, you know, I've watched you over the past few months and you've, you've been told as you've been going out there raising money for these companies these, these new star companies, you've been told uh, by a lot of folks, a lot of smart folks that uh, you can't find investment for political technology because of either the unique procurement challenges, the fact that it's an often nonprofit sector without some of the best parts of the nonprofit sector, like the fact you could deduct things for your taxes. Uh, but you and Betsy have gone out there and, and raised uh, more than people expected. Give us a, an update on your progress. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we've had a couple of brand name Silicon Valley investors uh, swing at us. They did some careful diligence. Um, Ron Klain, who was Joe Biden's chief of staff and is now the senior vice president of Revolution, has agreed to become the chairman of our board. And we have this fabulous group of advisors that kind of span uh, the investment world, the tech world, uh, and the political world that are going to exist to support these companies. And my response is one: even if you're right, let's suppose you're correct that the political tech market cannot return capital to investors and is not large enough to, to warrant institutional capital. Even if those things are true, Higher Ground Labs still needs to exist. We don't have a place that competes with the Koch brothers and the Mercer families and their soft money, which are continually reimagining better tools and building them. The Koch brothers built I360. Uh, too much has been made of Cambridge Analytica, but the Mercer family supported it financially. Uh, we don't have a place that uses soft money in the party to develop better tech tools. And that should exist even if I lose every last dollar of our investors, which I'm sure we won't. Um, because, you know, you know Betsy, who is my, my co-founder and is unbelievably impressive and kind of steeped in this world, uh, helped start 270 strategies. And she was in a place where she was constantly recommending bad tech tools to her clients. And those clients were not just campaigns. They were nonprofits and causes and corporations like Tesla and SolarCity uh, and Uber that are waging campaigns of their own or looking for better digital engagement and better digital marketing tools that sometimes the political world has has provided. And so political tech is an early market. It really started in 08. But if you look at some of the companies that have come out of political tech, Civis, Optimizely, Hustle, um, you know, these are companies. If you if I, if you add up all of the interesting political tech companies that came out of 08 and 12, you'd be looking at over a billion dollars in enterprise value from those companies. And so, managing that transition, finding them early enough, which I think would be our edge in an investing market, um, finding them early, being able to accelerate their development, feed them resources, and then help them climb uh, beyond just political campaigns as buyers. It's something I think that we're suited to do and we're prepared to do. And I think we're going to be able to return capital to investors and keep this as an evergreen platform. 
And so for folks listening, you know, there are a lot of members of the arena community who are super passionate about tech. And, and I know a lot of people who've been supporting the work that you've been doing. For the folks who are less uh, tech savvy, you, you started to talk about this a little bit, but what are some things that campaigns and candidates will be able to do uh, by the end of this 2018 cycle and then the end of 2020 uh, that they are not currently able to do, but they'll be able to do because of the support that higher grant ground. Yeah. You know, there are a couple companies I'm really excited about. One is a company called deck, which is a data analytics tool that basically can tell a campaign. It combines uh, um, some social media listening with historical data and tells campaigns how many voters they need to win a given election, who those voters are likely to be, how many volunteers they need to talk to those voters and who those volunteers are likely to be. It's run by this brilliant young data scientist his name Max Wood, who used to work for Betsy. And uh, his, his company advised probably nine campaigns last cycle called Every Race Within 1.8% Margin of Error. You'll remember earlier I said polling companies accept 65 to 7% margins of error. This kid called Every Race He Advised Within a 1.8% Margin of Error. Um, so that's a very special tool. And what makes it special is that those field sort of analytics models usually cost somewhere between $10,000 to $20,000 to build. His costs a penny a registered voter. And so for the first time, state house and state senate races, which uh, everybody knows are are a place of emphasis and importance for us, will be able to use that tool to help them identify voters to talk to and do better targeting. And look, too much is made of targeting. Maybe we're over-targeting, but you do need some model to tell you uh, the sort of swath of the electorate where where you need to be. And that's a really interesting tool to be able to get you there at a a price that everyone can afford. So I'm really excited about DEC. There's another company called Curiously, which is a London-backed, it's a London venture-backed polling company. Uh, And they are doing away with landline-based phone phone uh, polling and are replacing it with programmatic ad buys on mobile platforms to just ask people questions. And apparently it's the sort of loneliness in the human condition that lets people answer those questions. But 1% of people that interact end up interacting with those questions and answer their questions using that because they have so much data on device IDs, they can sort of, rebalance their sample size to look like the general population they're measuring. And using this technology, they correctly predicted Brexit. They correctly predicted Trump winning Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, which almost nobody got right. They predicted the elections in the Netherlands to the seat. They predicted Corbyn's recent strength in the UK election. Um, and they want to help Democrats. You know, So uh, that's a really ex- exciting sort of piece of, uh, piece of polling data that campaign candidates will be able to use. And what's also interesting about that is they're trying to build a CRM for campaigns to do some of this measurement themselves. And so you can think about when, you know, John Kerry was getting swift voted, they, they were not measuring how quickly the story was moving voter perception. They didn't have a quantitative tool to be able to identify that. And if you think about that as a quantitative tool for campaigns to measure on what stories are moving perception and what stories are not, that's an edge on the other side. So Curiously is another company I'm super psyched about. There's another company of young millennials that are um, feeding high quality content to influencers on social media and then tracking those influencers, followers, engagement with that content. So if somebody likes the con video, for example, which is the most shared video on the uh, during the, the 16 campaign, no one was able to map that against a voter file and tell you, hey, this person's sharing the video and is not registered to vote, or this person is an intermittent voter, uh, but is all over your content. And that's a very important sort of development. If we can improve the quality of the voter file, being able to map digital engagement against a voter file and then ride those folks 
experience in the polls is super important. And so as you look ahead, you know, what, what's, what's on tap right now? Like, what do you, what, what's the day to day at higher ground labs for the rest of the summer? Yeah. So we have selected our first 10 companies and we're going to be excited to roll those out in the next week or two. Uh, we've deployed over a million dollars into those companies. Uh, we are then going to bring them in for business boot camp. So once a month, we, for five months, they go through an intensive boot camp with higher ground labs. Uh, we start with help on product. Uh, we fly in world-class engineers from Silicon Valley to help them think about their product and product roadmaps. Um, we then focus on marketing and pitching uh, and bring them back to Chicago to sort get their marketing and pitching plans ready. And then we take them on the road. We take them to DC where they meet with all the campaign committees. We're going to take them to San Francisco where they meet with venture funds. And we're actually going to take a bunch of them to Virginia in November so they can co-locate with some of these state house races and tests. And we have an agreement in place with the Analyst Institute where analysts will help us understand. They will do some controls so we can understand the efficacy and impact of each of our of each of our pieces of tech on turnout. And you know, the the, the mandate for us is helping campaigns win. That is the thing that drove me to Higher Ground Labs, the thing that drove Betsy to Higher Ground Labs. It's what drove us to take the risk. So, you know, if our tech is not helping win campaigns, then it's not good tech, even if it's profitable. Um, and so that's a big piece of what we're focused on. So as a last question here, when we look ahead to 2020, you know, 2018, it, it, my prediction is right after 18, like almost to the day, people are going to start announcing for a president in 2020. Uh, as you look across the landscape, is who do you, who are you, who's out there that you're excited about that you're like, all right, I hope this person jumps in and I think they actually have a shot that gives you a little bit of that, that inspiration and idealism that brought you in, in 07 and 06. Man, Seth Moulton sounds like a special dude and I, I'd love to be able to help him out. And I, I've heard he's already talking to a couple of friends uh, of ours about meetings. And I think that's interesting. Um, I would love to be supportive of him. Jay Inslee has always impressed me. Um, most of the Northeast sort of liberal cabal, I'm not crazy about, uh, but save for Deval Patrick. And I don't know if the Bain Capital thing um, uh, makes it makes it prohibitive, but you know, he was also, he also had some of that before he ran for governor the first time, but I think governor Patrick's story and his sort of approach and charisma is a thing that most closely tracks Obama. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of these people up close. I, I, I share the opinion of many that there's going to be somebody that comes out of nowhere. Uh, and I think, you know, one, one thing that's been a blessing for arena is that we've met, a lot of these up and comers who come up through our community and, you know, do I think any, a lot of these people are going to run in 2020? Probably not, you know, these are, but these are future leaders like Stephanie Murphy and Jason Kander and mayor Pete, you know, these people who come into a room and are very clear about their values. They communicate them uh, convincingly. They connect them back to their story. And then every policy prescription they have connects back to that story and those values. And I think for all the pessimism I hear out there, the more I meet some of these new candidates, some of whom are not getting a lot of attention. I think beyond 2020, we're in good shape. I worry a little bit about 2020 because most of the people I just mentioned are probably premature for 2020, though they may jump in anyway. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm still looking. I'm still looking in 2020. You know what scares the shit out of me in 2020 is the idea that you could have 16 candidates, which we probably will have exactly like we did in 2016. I know we'll all be um, managers. A crowded <laughs> state. And so the question is, wait, it's all what? 
I said, we'll all be campaign managers. Uh, I mean, you get whatever job you want when there's 16. We'll all be pundits no matter what. Yeah. Like, I don't want, I just worry that like when you have 16 Democrats on stage, the only way to stand out is start saying crazier and crazier shit. Yeah. And so by the end of the debate, the person who stands out is maybe an idiosyncratic billionaire that's calling for Donald Trump's head instead of someone that's being thoughtful um, and, and sort of structured and linear in an argument. And like the, the latter was Obama, right? I mean, he just wasn't going to demagogue. He wasn't going to say anything crazy. And like, I'm just worried between the anger in the electorate right now, coupled with the sort of game theory of how you stand out in a crowd of 16 other candidates will lead to crazier things being said and more sort of, um, irrationality than, than we should see. And that, what that gives us is another sort of our Donald Trump, which is not what we need. Yeah. I think it's, I think it all depends on the numbers, right? So there's a certain, like if it's a head to head competition, the, the, the strategy is to be more liberal than your opponent. Probably if, if you're just thinking strategy, which obviously no great candidate is just thinking strategy, but you know, if it's head to head, the most liberal person probably wins. If it's five or six people, there's actually probably a a um, a benefit. There, it's probably starts to even out the chances for people who are more you know quote unquote moderate, right? Because then there's a lot of people tacking to the left, and there's probably some folks who enter the primary who uh, you know want a uh, more independent set of policies. I think when you get to twelve, fifteen, it's like you're saying it's anybody's guess, like what that means for. Like think about what makes a crowd roar when 12 people are saying the same fucking thing. Right. I mean, like on policy, there won't be much room to maneuver. So then the only way you sort of stand out is to make people's blood boil, which makes me worried. Um, And then it's also interesting. Like, I wonder what, how, from a message perspective, a candidate can stand out when I guess Bernie did it, but like on a policy basis, there's just not, I mean, I guess someone could come out for universal basic income and make a splash. Um, but it's, I'll be very curious to see how like message gets settled. One of the things that worries me is that, you know, in, in every time you've seen a chamber flip from Gingrich's revolution to what Rom did in 2006, um, there was sort of one person and one message that was pushed every day. And we're not seeing that come out in 18. Well, I don't think, I don't think that voice yet exists for 18, let alone for, for 20. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Shomik, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast and we wish you the best out there for higher ground. And uh, we'll link to your website and and give our listeners uh, the next steps to get involved. Love you, brother. Love what you guys are doing with Arena and uh, really proud of you.